I got to confess to you, I don't really like the news. It's not so much that I don't like the news. I enjoy keeping up with what's going on and current events. It's the way that we share the news today. The way that we share the news today is that immediately after an event happens, we share the info, and then there's a split screen of two talking heads going over why this means that their political cause should advance and not the political cause of the person on the other side of the screen. We're at a place in our country right now where we have very little empathy. We don't take time to just grieve anymore. Immediately, there's a cause that we want to attach to everything. And I'll be honest, this passage that Nathan read to us earlier is, I struggle with it for the same reason. I love this story that we're going to look over, Jesus turning the water to wine at a wedding. But I struggle with this passage because most of the time that it's brought up, people don't bring this passage up to me because they want to talk about how powerful Jesus is as the Son of God. People don't bring this passage up to me because they want to talk about how Jesus can take a basic element like water and make it better, and how it's a sign of what he can do in a life. What do you think they want to talk to me about when they bring up this story? They want to talk to me about the fact that Jesus made wine. And it often comes on the tail end of someone saying, well, I do this, but that's not a problem because Jesus made wine, right? And that's not what this passage of Scripture is about at all. I think if John heard us talk about this passage, he'd be like, you guys completely missed the point. And so I don't want to focus on that, but there are a couple things that I just want to lay out really quick to help us set that aside and focus on what this passage is really about. First of all, you need to realize that when the Bible tells us here in John chapter 2 that Jesus turned the water into wine, that it was a completely different element than what you think of when you think of wine. It's a completely different element than you can go buy at the liquor store or at the grocery store this Memorial Day weekend. The potency was completely different. The wine that they had in scriptural times was not something that you had a few sips of and got drunk. It was something that if you wanted to get drunk, you had to work at it. You had to wake up early in the morning and get down to the vineyard. They referred to drunks as people who were early at the vineyards so they could start drinking as early as possible. Not because they had become so accustomed to it over the years, but because that's what it took. It took a work ethic to get drunk off of this vine because the potency was completely different. And the purpose was completely different. The reason that they had wine was so that they could use it as an antiseptic in their water. You and I right now, there are multiple places in this building where we can get fresh, clean drinking water. And that's a blessing that we take for granted. They didn't have that. They drew water out of wells and there'd be bacteria in it and they would use wine as an antiseptic to purify the water, to cleanse it of the bacteria that was in it. Paul writes to one of his ministry apprentices who's serving in a different place than he grew up. And he's getting sick all the time. And he tells them, take some wine for your stomach to use the antiseptic to clear out the germs that are there. If you've ever gone overseas or you've been in a country that's different, you know that you're not supposed to drink the water there. Because even though they can drink it, they grew up on it. Their, their immune system is used to it. Even the, the, the water that that's comes out of a tap, you shouldn't drink because while it's cleaned and they're used to it, you're not. And there's, there's bacteria in it that you're not used to. And so they used wine for that purpose. It was this antiseptic to, to cleanse it. So the potency was completely different, the purpose was completely different, and the phraseology was completely different. Right? It's good that in our English language we have two different words for wine and juice. Right? Because we would really worry about you if you told us that you gave your kid a wine box. 
But if you said you gave them a juice box, oh, that's fine, right? Now, there, there needs to be a difference in label because there's a big difference between giving your kid a juice box and giving your kid a box of wine, right? Can we all agree on that? Are you guys with me? Yes? All right, you worried me there a little bit. And the reason that there's this, there needs to be this difference in labels is because there's a major difference between those two things. In Jesus' day, there wasn't that big distinction, okay? Now, some of you, depending on where you're from, where you grew up in the country, you say Coke or pop or soda, right? And some of you, when you say Coke, you mean a Dr. Pepper. Or you mean, um, what's the Sam's Club knockoff brand, you know? Uh, you, you mean, the, you, you mean a, a carbonated beverage loaded with sugar. You're not referring to a Coca-Cola classic. Even though Coke is the name of a particular brand, it's, it's all the same, right? In Jesus' day, wine and juice, it was so similar, there didn't need to be a different word. It wasn't this differentiation. And so there are places in Scripture that wine refers to juice, and there are places in Scripture that wine refers to what we would call wine, right? So let me lay all of that down so we can just say, please don't use this passage of Scripture as a justification to abuse alcohol, because that's not what it's about, all right? Now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's talk about what this is about. And I think for us to see the purpose of this passage, what John is trying to communicate to us, the sign that he wants us to see to believe, we need to walk through three things. We need to walk through the context. We need to walk through this conversation that he has with his mother Mary. And then lastly, we need to walk through the conversion of the water into wine. So why is the context important? The context is that Jesus does this miracle. He changes water into wine at a wedding at a party, that Jesus was invited to with his disciples. And I think that that's important because I'm afraid that we have this idea that Jesus was this religious type guy who always had his nose in an old scroll, who lived out in the wilderness, stayed off to himself, to himself, and then whenever he had a message, he would come and he would speak to the people, and then he would retreat back into the wilderness, staying cloistered off from everybody else. But that's not the case. Because what we see throughout John's gospel again and again and again is that Jesus is constantly surrounded by people. He spent most of his life, most of his time, surrounded by a crowd, constantly in social settings. You know what that means? That tells me that Jesus was a person that people liked to be around. That everywhere he seems to go, there are people around. Now, there were people that didn't like Jesus. But that was their fault. It wasn't Jesus' fault. Jesus was great to be around, and people who were around him, they experienced this grace and this peace and this truth, and there were some who rejected that, but it was because of their own heart, their doubt, their conviction, their pride, their anger. Now, some of you, you have people who don't like you, and it's your fault. It's your fault they don't like you, because you were mean to them or you said something unkind, or you were unpleasant. And you might like to think, like, I'm just so persecuted because so-and-so doesn't like me. No, you were just mean to them. That's the reason they don't like you. There was no interaction that Jesus had where somebody walked away and they said, I don't like that guy, and it was Jesus' fault. It was always their fault. And whenever we become more like Jesus, it has a positive impact on our relationships. 
Now, the other person might not respond. The other person might, because of their conviction, because of their anger, because of their resentment, because of their doubt, they might reject you. But if you become more like Jesus, it will always have a positive impact on your relationships. I have never counseled a couple that's having problems in their marriage, and we find out the root problem is that the husband is just being too much like Jesus. That's never the issue. I've never settled a disagreement between two people, two friends, where we find out the result is that somebody's just being too much like Jesus. Jesus was a life-giving person, and he was life-giving to be around in person. When people spent time around Jesus, it brought life and vitality. And when we become more and more like Jesus... That's the kind of impact we'll have on others. Now, that doesn't mean that they'll always accept us and they'll always like everything that we say and they'll always want us around. But if we become more and more like Jesus, we'll become more and more of a life-giving person. And this is important because you've got to see that Jesus wasn't a wet blanket. Jesus was a convicting presence. Jesus was a person that when people around him, they recognized their shame and their guilt and their faults. But Jesus was one that people enjoyed being around. I like the way that Bruner said it, and we're going to put that quote up on the screen. He said, Jesus was not a hermit. He wasn't someone who was always close to Ray, and he wasn't unnaturally religious. Now, religion is good. Having a weekly service time, a time that you come to church every week, is a good thing. What Bruner is saying here is that Jesus wasn't an unnaturally religious person, a person who all they ever talked about, all they ever, was, was the Bible, was Scripture. Jesus was able to have a conversation with people. He was able to go to these parties. He was able to go to these weddings. People invited him to these things. And he was constantly around people that made his disciples a little uncomfortable. He was constantly around people that his, his enemies, the religious elite, would use against him to try to discredit him. To, to make him look bad because he's hanging around with his people and the disciples would say, hey, Jesus, do you know what kind of person that is? Do you know, do you know what she does for a living? The Pharisees would say, he, he's, he's eating and drinking with Pharisees, with, with sinners, publicans. Jesus was able to be around these people and love them and share the truth with them. And so it's fitting that at the very beginning of John's story of Jesus' life, the very first miracle happens, happens at a party, surrounded by people. And because of these relationships, Jesus has this positive impact on those around him. The wedding was better for Jesus being there. The party was better because Jesus showed up. And your life is better when Jesus shows up. So that's the context. But now we need to talk about this conversation that Jesus has with his mother. Because if you're like me, this feels a little off. Let's look back at those verses together, okay? We're going to start uh, reading in verse 4. Jesus saith unto her, his mom has just come to him to let him know that they're out of wine. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Verse 5 says, His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Now, I don't know where you grew up, but I'm pretty sure that wherever you grew up, it was inappropriate for you to call your mom woman. 
my, my, dad, my dad is from Eastern North Carolina. He, he grew up in the country, and so he very much appreciates when people say, no, sir, no, ma'am, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Um, you, know, you call people Mr. Edwards, not by their first name. I think that if, if, my, if my dad had been at work, and I said to my mom at the house, woman, I think my dad would have come busting through a closet or something and grabbed a hold of me. Now, there are people that have said that the reason that Jesus says this is a cultural thing. I don't think that there is a culture in the world where this is okay. So why does Jesus talk to Mary like this? Why does Jesus say to his own mother, woman, what does that have to do with me? What's that got to do with me? I think what is happening here is that Jesus wants us to see that what's happening next is not out of compulsion. Now remember, John's telling us this story. And John has told us that he's going to tell us the stories that will lead us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. Now, if I'm telling this story, I'm going to leave that part out. If I was telling the story about you, I'd leave the part out where you were disrespectful to your mom because I want other people to appreciate you. But John includes this story. He is completely transparent and honest and includes the story where Jesus says this to his mother. Why? John wants us to see that the reason Jesus does this thing where he converts this water into wine and he saves the day at this wedding, that it wasn't because mama told him he had to. It wasn't because mama made him. It wasn't because Mary guilted him into it. Jesus did it not because he had to or because his mama made him. Jesus did it because he could. And John wants to see that this is generosity, not compulsion. And this is important. Because Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Messiah, the Son of Man, the one who can fill the throne that is left empty in heaven, who can only be filled by the one who destroys the work of evil. That is Jesus, and he is totally clear on who he is. He ended chapter 1 by referring to himself as the Son of Man, saying, that's who I am, and you're going to see great works happen here. Jesus is completely clear on who he is. And so he does this not because, well, Mom wants me to. He does this because he can. And some of you, if you're honest, there's some things you did last Sunday because it was Mother's Day, and if you didn't, Mom's going to be mad. Right? And it's kind of that same thing where your wife asks you to take out the trash for the third time, and she kind of puts that oomph on the end of it and gives you that look, and you're like, I better do this, or I'm going to be in trouble. And you're like, sure thing, sweetie. And you carry it out. But it's, it's not out of generosity and kindness. It's out of compulsion. Why does Jesus speak to his mother this way? Because he's Jesus. Because he's the Son of God. And if you're not Jesus, don't talk to your mom this way. <laughs> he's the only one that can get away with this, all right? John wants us to see he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God, he has this standing. And he does what he does. He turns the water into wine, not because he was made to, not because he was pressured into it. He didn't do anything because he had to. Nothing that Jesus did in his life or his death was because he had to. It's because he could. And he was generous. 
I like the way Paul points it out. He talks about this in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4 tells us that he's telling the, the Philippians, don't, don't be selfish. Look not every man on his own things, but esteem others better than yourselves. Look on the, the needs of others. And let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He understood his place and knew that he was in equality with God, but took upon him the form of a servant. You know what he's saying? He's saying Jesus was God in the flesh. He's equal with God, but he took on the form of a servant. And became obedient unto the death even the death of the cross. Being found in, in, in likeness of a man, fashion of a man, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. What, what are we trying to see here? What is it that Paul's telling us in Philippians 2? What is it that John is telling us in John chapter 2? Jesus was nobody's slave. Jesus was nobody's slave, but he was servant to all. He did not give himself because he had to, but because he was willing to. He didn't turn the water into wine because he had to, but because he could, and he was being generous. It was out of kindness. You know, I, I hope that when we collect the offering here at our church, I hope that nobody feels like I'm watching them to see if they give. We've got security cameras for that. They can check that out. <laughs> I'm kidding. We don't want anybody to give because they're compelled to give. I want them to give because they can, because they're being generous. And generosity is not giving because you have to. Generosity is giving because you get to. Generosity is not giving because you're supposed to. Generosity is giving because you can and you're glad that you get to. And when we serve Jesus, if we're doing it out of compulsion or we're doing it out of manipulation or we're doing it because Pastor Daniel made me or he made me feel guilty, that's not going to last. But if we can do it with a generosity of spirit and a generosity of heart, that's something completely different. That's a completely different experience. I, I've needed, I have needed this passage this week. I've needed this passage this week because there are people, there are people in our community, they view our church like they view the, the park in town. Like, my taxes paid for this. And they view my time that way. And there are times that I have conversations with you and they have these expectations on me. And there's this thing that comes up within me and says, I don't owe you anything. You didn't build this. Our generous people built this. I got people all around me that, that, that are a part of the mission, that are a part of this, that need me. I, I don't have this time. And I need the gospel to push that down in me. Because it is true that I am a slave to none. But I am called to be a servant to all. And that's what Jesus did. That's the reason one of our values is that we're not just in Chandler. We're for Chandler. God has called us here for a reason. And so Jesus does not turn the water into wine out of compulsion or out of manipulation because he has to, but because he's generous. And now let's see how he does it. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. After the manner of the purifying of the Jews. After the manner of the purifying of the Jews. 
When John says this, people who read it in that time and place would have known exactly what he was talking about because in that culture, everything centered around whether you're clean or you're not. Now, in our culture, maybe everything centers around if you're rich or you're not, or you're famous or you're not, or you're connected or you're not. But in that culture, everything centered around if you're clean or you're not. And they had all of these religious ceremonies for getting clean. And if you participated in some activity that made you unclean, you have to go and be ceremonially clean. Before you can enter into the temple, before you can be a part of the party, you've got to be ceremonial clean. And so probably have these basins here at this wedding feast so that everybody who's coming in, all of the guests who are coming in, they can go through the ceremony of showing I am clean, I have status to be welcomed into this feast because I have gone through this ceremonial cleansing and I should be welcomed as a guest because I'm ceremonially clean. Some of you, you walked into church this day and you don't feel like you belong because you feel guilty or you feel ashamed or you feel like there's some things you did this week that because you did them, you shouldn't walk in the church. And it would actually help you if we had basins out in the foyer or out by the entrance that you could splash some water on you and, okay, I'm holy now, I'm cleansed, I'm good. I can go into church now. But that wouldn't be worth anything because you'd be the same person. And when Jesus turns the water into wine, he says, let's use these ceremonially, ceremonial cleansing basins. Fill those with water. And these basins that they use to clean themselves again and again, to, to, to splash some water on themselves and say, look, I'm cleansed. I have been cleaned. I should be welcomed now. I should be welcomed into the temple now. I should be welcomed into the party now. I should be a part of the wedding feast now. I'm clean. Jesus says, let's use that. And I'm going to show you how powerful I am. And I'm not only going to have the water in there and they fill it up to the brim, I'm going to make it something new. We, we watch people be baptized today. This water right here, nothing special about it. It's just natural, standard, hard Chandler water. It's what it is. It's what comes out of the tap at your house. Nothing magical about that water. Doesn't have the power to cleanse anyone. Might wash some dust off, but afterwards you're still the same person. And Jesus says these pots that they've used to cleanse themselves again and again and again, and they need to be cleaned again, and they go out and they get dirty again, and they need to be cleansed again. And it's this ongoing thing of clean, not clean, clean, not clean, clean, not clean. He says, I'm going to use that to make something new. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't just cleanse you. He makes you new. He makes you new. And people aren't baptized to show that they're clean. People are baptized to show that Jesus has made the difference and they go in the water like Jesus went into the grave when he died on the cross for our sins and shed his blood so that we could be cleansed, not just on the outside, but on the inside. Not just a shower for our bodies, but a, a cleansing for our hearts and our souls. He went into the ground. We go into the ground, but he didn't stay dead. He resurrected to new life. And we come out of the water to show that just as Jesus came out of the grave, we have come out of the death that we walked in into new life. And Jesus doesn't just cleanse, cleanse us. He doesn't just clean us. He makes us new. And only he can do that. 
Some servants can fill the pots with water. But only Jesus can transform it into something completely different. To take a natural, basic element like water and transform it into something that is beautiful and wonderful, that the the master of ceremonies, the master of the feast, says, this is the best I have ever had. And all throughout this passage, there are signs of Jesus' generosity. They filled it up to the brim. They couldn't get another drop in. Jesus is saying, we're going to give them as much as we possibly can, and we're going to give them the very best that we possibly can. And Jesus didn't die on the cross to give us leftovers. He didn't die on the cross to give us mediocre. He died on the cross to make us new. To make us new. Not just clean for one more time, but completely new. And that's the reason that those t-shirts that they were wearing when they were baptized, that's the reason they say, raised to life. Raised to life. Because that's what Jesus does. And only the Son of God could do that. So John tells us this story. And at the very end of it, do you remember the last verses that Nathan read? The very end of it says, And in this, he showed us his glory. And we believed. Now, now the master of ceremonies doesn't even know where this wine came from. Jesus doesn't get up in, in front of everybody and say, Hey, thanks for everybody for being here. I just want you to know that I made that wine. He doesn't tell anyone. The only people that know are the disciples, the servants, Jesus and his mother. But seeing the glory of God, they believed. Oh, and when we see the glory of God at work in someone's life, that's reason to believe. That's reason to celebrate. That's reason to recognize he is who he says Would you bow your heads with me? I want to give you a moment right now to respond to what the Lord has been speaking to you about, how the Spirit's been speaking to you.